the upper hand that the vintage 3D films have over what they're doing today is the fact that these were photographed with actual stereo camera rigs. The lenses are a few inches apart, so they're very close to what the, the human eye would see. Uh, and most of the 3D films now are shot flat and post-converted. Out of the silver shadows and into the Klieg lights of Movieland comes Nitrateville Radio. This is Michael Gebert in Chicago with Nitrateville Radio, the podcast that talks to people doing cool stuff in the world of classic era film. Brought to you by Nitrateville.com, the discussion site about movies from the classic age from all around the world. It came from outer space, or so it seemed. 3D was a 1950s sensation that quickly turned into a theatrical bust. But there was always more than that to the story of 3D films. And in this episode, I talked to two of the people bringing the vintage era of 3D back from the Black Lagoon to Blu-ray, Bob Fermanek and Jack Theakston. So put your glasses on and get ready for new thrills in stereoscopic film history. And remember to stay in the bubble by subscribing to Nitrateville Radio at iTunes, SoundCloud, or Stitcher. Adventures in Time and Space, told in future tense. Dimension That's the opening of the 1950s sci-fi radio series Dimension X, which has nothing really to do with 3D movies, though they certainly had something to do with the fact that Dimension had a futuristic sound to it throughout the 1950s. When the fad was over, 3D was mostly forgotten, and anything Hollywood forgets is in danger of being lost forever. That's where Bob Fermanek comes in, a film restorer and the founder of 3D Film Archive. He's devoted the last few decades to tracking down the ephemeral films of Hollywood's attempt to make movies leap from the screen. And if you think saving films is hard, just wait till you have to do it twice, once for each eye. I spoke with him and his associate, Jack Theakson. Along with Greg Kins, Thad Komarowski, and others, they've not only saved rare 3D titles, but found a niche putting them out on Blu-ray for home enjoyment, through labels including Universal, Kino Lorber, and Flickr Alley. Now the Museum of Modern Art is showcasing their work, with a week of screenings of films ranging from GOG to Those Redheads from Seattle, hopefully to be followed by other screenings around the country. Let me introduce my guests here uh, and, and tell me what you do, because I, I kind of only sort of know what each of you does. Uh, first, Bob Fermanek, who is one of those guys whose names you see on restorations a lot when they come out on DVD and Blu-ray. So tell me, tell me about that. Well, uh, Mike, it's a pleasure to be with you. Thank you for inviting me. Uh, I work uh, in film restoration. Uh, I've done some producing, some writing. Uh, you know, I've, I've bounced around. Uh, I was 
personal archivist to Jerry Lewis for quite a number of years. Uh, I've dug through a lot of vaults, found a lot of rare films and lost films. And, uh, you know, the 3D film archive is something I started back uh, around 1990. Uh, it it actually goes back a decade before that, but, you know, I try to save, rescue a lot of rare and lost 3D films, and uh, it's finally taken off, and we're releasing things on Blu-ray and uh, having a nice spotlight uh, at the Museum of Modern Art this week, so uh, it's, uh, it's going well. All right. Well, we'll we'll go into all of that in more detail, I'm sure. And I promise not to ask any questions about the day of the clown cried because I just don't care about it. Uh, okay. Oh, you're the one. Okay. <laughs> yes, I'm apparently the only one on earth. Um, and Jack, Jack, I met at Capitol Fest last year. Although you have now relocated to New York, um, a film guy, a real film guy, uh, interested in. Um, rescuing films, but also a, a real-life projectionist who just came off uh, combat duty on Dunkirk, I understand. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Six weeks in 70 millimeter. Um, so currently I'm, my bread-and-butter job is I'm a full-time projectionist here in town. Before that, I uh, had a tenure of six years as the assistant manager at the Capitol Theater in Rome, where Capitol Fest takes place. And where do you project in New York? I'm currently full-time at uh, Nighthawk Cinema in Brooklyn, and also I do part-time work at Alamo Draft House in Brooklyn. Okay. All right. Well, and the two of you have worked together on a, a lot of these 3D releases, which are coming out on, on Blu-ray and things like that. Um, let's, yeah, let's just go into into 3D here. Now, you know, I was, as you mentioned, the 3D Film Archive site, uh, talk about rabbit holes on the internet that you can just disappear into for hours. We think of 3D as having been a 1950s sensation, fairly short-lived, and having these occasional uh, comebacks. I mean, I saw House of Wax in 71, which even Bob didn't, apparently. Uh, no. <laughs> and, I, and, you know, and I saw Coming At You in the early 80s and who knows what else. Um, well, I saw that one, and I'm, I'm still trying to get over the headache. Yeah, yeah. If any, if ever a movie was designed to kill 3D again, that was it. Um, but um, let's let's talk about. I mean, I I know one of the things I noticed that among the lost 3D films are some things that Edwin Porter shot in 1915. So clearly, 3D has a long, long history that nobody really is aware of. So tell us about 3D from from its the earliest attempts to render three dimensions in film. Yeah, I mean, as you have any aspect of film, whether it be just the picture itself, and then uh, in the early days of film, attempts at color and sound synchronization, um, it only, it's only logical then that filmmakers would want to have depth to their image too. And um, in a lot of the research that we've done, the idea of stereoscopic films goes back to the turn of the last century. In fact, you know, there are patents on file for systems that may or may not have actually been used or made or uh, tested, but they were definitely put as a patent file. Uh, Porter's show is the earliest known show in, uh, in America, possibly the world. And uh, he was, everyone remembers him as the director for Edison of the great train robbery and a lot of his 
early narrative films. But uh, Porter was actually um, a, um, a, uh, a shop guy. He was a gearhead. Uh, he only got that directorial credit because he had to. But uh, his his mainstay was gears and uh, projectors and uh, the technological end of it. And so in 1915, they do they shoot these tests with uh, some actors at the time uh, doing some scenes from a, a film that was being made called Jim the Penman, although it's been erroneously said that the entire film was shot in 3D. That's not true. Uh, and then some other scenes, uh, Niagara Falls and some dancers and stuff like that. And uh, they ran it, and people were interested, but not enough. And then it, the technology sort of just sat on the shelf for a little while. And in the ni- early 1920s, uh, it gets a resurgence, or actual, or the first wave of actual 3D uh, filmmaking in this country starts in the early 1920s. Uh, you have several different key players making films at the same time. And uh, the first is a uh, uh, West Coast outfit making a uh, feature-length film uh, called The Power of Love. It was shown, as far as we can tell, twice to audiences, just as a test, and then uh, released flat as Forbidden Lovers. And uh, that actually had a real cast in it. Uh, Barbara Bedford and Noah Beery were the stars of it. And then back on the East Coast, um, many of the guys that were doing color tests and color filmmaking were also tinkering with stereoscopic filmmaking. And so you have people like um, William Kelly and uh, William Crespinel, and they were running a company at the time called Prisma that were making color films and little shorts and things. And then they start doing... Uh, tests in 3D and making little 3D shorts that are being run in New York. And they're so successful there that uh, Path A picks up the series. And throughout the 20s, there was about half a dozen short subjects made in 3D. And this was the old school anaglyphic 3D, red uh, red and blue. And you had to use red and blue glasses for it. Um, And in those cases, they're just look, they were little novelty shorts. They, They ran maybe a half a reel to a real in length, uh, and it's all the stuff you can actually see on our uh, Blu-ray 3D rarities. They actually cut together a best of reel, and uh, a lot of that is shown in one of the shorts that we have on that set. So they would just dye, you know, two different uh, strips of film, one red, one green, and run them in sync? Uh, no, uh, it was actually one strip of film. It was the same type of uh, stock they were using for color. So uh, one side was uh, toned red and one side was toned blue, kind of like the old Cinecolor films uh, where they had two emulsions on them. And originally they were, the stock was made to be used to print two different colors at the same time. But what they found is they're complementary colors. So you could also do two strips of black and white film, but one would be the left eye and one would be the right eye. Now, around the same time, you know, we've all read that Abelgans experimented with 3D for Napoleon. Like he didn't have enough going on on that picture. What do we know about that? Um, I don't know too much about Gantz's, uh t- tests and techniques. 
he was trying everything out under the sun. And so the thing that's a little confusing is, uh, well, first of all, you have to find the primary sources, and those are all going to be in French, of course. So there's a little bit lost in translation, but uh, you find at the time, even up until the 50s, the term stereoscopic gets thrown around a lot. And when we hear that today, the context is in 3D. But stereoscopic was also being used to describe things like widescreen and all these kind of ersatz processes where they were using lenses that had a better depth of field than the lenses that were being used at the time. And so it gave to an average viewer from that period a stereoscopic appearance. But it wasn't true stereoscopy. I know he tested out a number of things, number of widescreen processes. Uh, he probably did try a stereoscopic process. Uh, we found out about a thing that Chaplin tested out that was more just stereoscopic. But uh, it turns out that it wasn't. It was just this kind of pseudo-stereoscopic system, this, this uh, thing that kind of jittered back and forth, but it wasn't real 3D. A lot of that, or most of that early uh, 3D film from the 1920s does not survive. Uh, if anything, uh, the power of love is lost. Uh, one side of uh, uh, radio mania survives. But Jack actually discovered uh, the earliest uh, surviving side of a 3D film. It's kind of an interesting story. It was a short that was made to go with the power of love, and it was called Selected Views of Yosemite Valley. And uh, Jack, you, you want to share that story of how you found that footage? I uh, run a, uh, a forum online that's dedicated to 35 millimeter film collection and preservation. And uh, we were, well, I should say, I was just trolling around looking at uh, what was for sale. And somebody posted uh, clips or frames of a film and they were asking about this they were saying it's this this opening title on this film that i have says a stereoscopic presentation but i don't see any 3d and i looked at it and it said uh views of yosemite park I knew exactly what it was the earliest existing footage on any 3d film as far as i know now in the 1930s you start to see um, 3D becomes kind of a standard attraction at the various world's fairs and expos and things that were happening, which seems kind of a natural place for it to have come out of. And the sort of place where people are maybe more tolerant of a new technology that requires holding, you know, Plymouth-shaped glasses up to their eyes or whatever. Um, and so tell me about the reaction to, and you know, what some of those films were and what the, what the uh, public reaction to them was. Well, a big development uh, occurred in 1936, and that was the introduction of polarized 3D. Uh, prior to that, as Jack mentioned, uh, everything was shown in the red cyan anaglyphic. Well, polarized 3D gave you the opportunity to not only view a superior uh, 3D image with much better cancellation of the left-right sides, but a full-color 3D film. And uh, it was introduced uh, initially in black and white uh, in 1939 at the New York World's Fair and the Golden Gate Exposition in San Francisco. And uh, the, 
the Golden Gate short was called Thrills for You, and it was a, a fabulous promo film. It runs about eight minutes or so for the Pennsylvania Railroad. And uh, we've actually preserved that, and that is also on our 3D rarity set. Uh, at the New York World's Fair, uh, John Norling uh, produced a film called In Tune with Tomorrow, which uh, was a, a promo film showing the, the, the new model uh, of uh, General Motors cars for 1939. And oh, Chrysler Plymouth. Chrysler Plymouth. Thank you, Jack. <laughs> I'm not a car guy, so I can't. But uh, so they, uh, it was an incredibly popular attraction at the 39 fair. And when they shut down uh, for the winter months, uh, Norling uh, had a bigger budget and they reshot it this time in Technicolor. And uh, a film, New Dimensions, opened in, in May of 1940. And that was the first full-color 3D film shown uh, domestically. And again, was a huge success. Millions of people uh, went through the, the fair and saw it that summer. And uh, about 20, oh, I guess about 27 or so years ago, I found uh, the only existing 35 millimeter left-right material on it, which was a, uh, a 1940 safety stock print, which in and of itself was pretty unique. And uh, we preserved that, and it's a fascinating look at, um, you know, a 1940 car, a full-scale car being assembled before your eyes from, the, from you know, the bottom up. And it's, it's a remarkable film. And uh, I think what effectively put a halt on any 3D development was the Second World War. Uh, not much happened uh, from 1940 to uh, the early 1950s. Well, I think it's interesting that the, I mean, the World's Fairs were a natural driver for that. And we really have the analogy to that still today, which is that when there's no three, you know, whenever there's been a time period that 3D has not been in theaters, Still, there was one place you could go to see it, which was basically Orlando. You know, there would be 3D films at Disney World, you know, Captain EO and and, uh, at Universal. And it's still a big part of the rides. And to me, that kind of has that same spirit of the, you know, the use of it at the at the World's Fairs, which, of course, Disney was involved with, you know, in the 1960s, um, as opposed to using it for theatrical feature films. Well, the thing about having it at... um amusement parks and expos and fairs and things like that too is the quality control is much higher. You have a staff of people where their only job is to make sure these things go technically correct. And um, as I guess we'll discuss in a little bit, the biggest problem with the 1950s boom of 3D was that uh, there was just no quality control. And so you had projectionists that were maybe either uh, unqualified to run that or didn't have the equipment necessary to run 3D. Whereas at the 1939 World's Fair, there was a pavilion theater that was set up for the express purpose of running this one film. Yeah. Well, let's talk about that. I mean, was there any interest, you know, before the war in taking 3D into theatrical filmmaking at all, or was it still just seen as that kind of novelty? I mean, I, I know... think it was mostly a novelty at that point. Uh, MGM made three shorts in 3D. And yeah, Pete, Pete Smith did some, didn't he? 
Yeah, those were the films. Uh, the first two are, for the most part, just test footage that the two technicians that were involved with uh, 3D at the time, in fact, the same guy that did um, the, the New York World's Fair stuff, uh, John Norling, um, they're just test footage that they shot, you know, of uh, driving around New York, uh, going to a baseball game, people throwing stuff at the camera. And then in 41, uh, Pete Smith decided that uh, he was going to do kind of an original Hollywood narrative short, comedy short, and uh, the studio actually built a camera rig for him, and they uh, shot this short that became Third Dimensional Murder, basically a horror comedy short. And again, it's the same thing. It's uh, at what can we throw at the screen? But nobody ever had the idea. I mean, there was no no talk of you know shooting Stagecoach or Doctor Cyclops or anything like that in uh, in three D. No, and in fact, uh, it's funny. Of all people, I think the reason for this was put best by Adolf Zucker at the time of uh, the nineteen fifties surgeons of three uh, D was. Uh, they didn't really need to, you know, m- movies were doing well enough on their own. It was kind of like it would have been uh, just extra added cost for most, most of these productions that uh, was unnecessary at the time. So it just kind of got left to the realm of short subjects and, and little things that they could do every once in a while. Well, ironically, uh, you know, we're still doing research and it's an ongoing thing and we're still finding things that were planned for 3D or filmed in 3D. And just within the past few months, uh, while doing research uh, for a, a detailed article on a, one of the films we'll be restoring called Sangaree, uh, we found some references in 1938 that Harold Lloyd uh, wanted uh, some 3D footage in uh, Professor Beware. Uh, yeah. He was in pre, pre-production, and he was looking to include a 3D segment, and he talked with some of the technical people uh, at Paramount about uh, building a camera that would make that possible. Uh, it never happened, obviously, but uh, you know, Lloyd was probably the first uh, you know, filmmaker that considered. In fact, in the early 1920s, when the Pathé shorts were playing, uh, Lloyd was quoted as... Uh, uh, being a strong advocate for 3D film and and seeing quite a future in it, but uh, uh, in 1938, you know the the opportunity to do polarized 3D, which for quality is I'm sure what Lloyd would have wanted in his film, uh, it was just not there. Never before has the color camera captured such savage jungle violence as killer lions terrorize a fierce warrior tribe and a relentless white hunter challenges death itself for the love of his beautiful bride. It's the unforgettable African adventure story that made screen history. Okay, so was Buona Devil really the first 3D feature film? Buona Devil was the first full-color domestic 3D film. Uh, There was a feature done uh, in, I believe, about 1936 or 37. Uh, Jack, was it in Germany that they did? um, Uh, Italy. In Italy, okay. Uh, You know, so there there were some things done pre-war internationally, but uh, Buona Devil was the first full-color domestic 3D feature. Now, had there been any anaglyphic features in the 50s before it or Buona Devil was really the beginning? No, that was the first. Uh, 
they really never did any anaglyphic features. There were things done in Russia in the 1940s that were also polarized, but um, uh, there was nothing. The only thing that was done in anaglyphic in the 1950s were some uh, shorts from uh, Lippert and some burlesque shorts from Dan Sonny. But everything else, uh, feature-wise and from the major studios, were, were shown polarized. Okay, because, yeah, there's that whole page on your site uh, about 3D myths. So I guess that's the first one right there, which is that in the heyday of 3D, it was never the red and green, except, as you say, for a few shorts. Um, it was always the the full polarized 3D with the with the just the, the visual superiority of that system. Absolutely. And, and in fact, it's it's similar in many ways to what you'll see in 3D in theaters today. Uh, the techniques are a little different, but uh, the glasses are very similar. And, uh, you know, we thank of all people. I think we have Tony Anthony to thank for that anaglyphic myth, because when uh, when he was out promoting coming at you. Uh, in 1980 or 81, uh, he kept referring to those old anaglyphic 3D movies like House of Wax and whatnot. And uh, it just sort of caught on. And, and then you had people over the years, even Roger Ebert, for all of his uh, knowledge and expertise, uh, insisted that the 3D movies of the 50s were anaglyphic. Uh, so, you know, you had that m kind of misinformation uh, some of the th films like Creature from the Black Lagoon and Robot Monster and The Maze were converted to anaglyphic for television broadcasts in the early 80s. Well, and I showed but, them that uh, way in, in college, too, when I ran the Film Society. We had a double bill of it came from outer space and Creature from the Black Lagoon, which amusingly uh, both have the same shot at the beginning, the one where the pla planet blows up and sends rocks flying out over the audience. Uh, the audience sort of appreciated getting an encore of that. You know, Universal always said a good shot is worth repeating. So uh, that's why you got the encore. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So let's talk about what were the, the films. So the first one, Buona Devil. I mean, it seems like independent producers tend to drive a lot of the technical innovation in the movies because they see it as that that's their chance to kind of break in with something novel and special. And, you know, the same is true with, with Technicolor back in the 30s with uh, Marion Cooper and Jock Whitney and things like that. Um, so what was, I mean, Arch Obler's film, uh, Buona Devil, and some of the other things. Tell me about the, just kind of the atmosphere as those came out. Well, nobody wanted to touch 3D. Uh, Natural Vision peddled their camera rig uh, as early as 1951 and showed it to a number of studios. And I think even MGM took out an option on it, uh, but never used it. And it really was finally Arch Obler uh, when they were going to produce uh, uh, his independent film in the summer of 1952 that he saw some of the tests. And he decided to, uh, you know, take a chance with it. And uh, it was a really brilliant move because it made it, it opened on Thanksgiving Day in 1952 in Hollywood and at the two Paramount theaters. And the lines were around the block. I mean, it did an incredible business. And the uh, studios immediately went into uh, plans for, uh, for 3D production. And Warner Brothers and Jack Warner was the first to sign with uh, Natural Vision to do House of Wax. Uh, 
Uh, but you had, uh, you know, Columbia started with Man in the Dark was their first. And uh, that actually shot for a few days flat. And they uh, revamped it for 3D. Uh, Universal put it came from outer space into production. Uh, Paramount had Sangaree. Uh, MGM did Arena. Uh, it, it happened very quickly. And by the, the spring of 1953, uh, just about every every studio was shooting 3d and in fact the only one that didn't was uh, republic uh, uh herbert yates uh, didn't believe in it and uh you know didn't want to put his eggs in that basket but uh, it it was a you know lightning in a bottle for a very short period uh by the fall of 1953 uh business was starting to drop off and uh, you know jack can discuss this a little bit further but primarily it was the presentations that were lacking and uh, you know think about it if you, if you paid your 50 cents and went to a 3d movie and came home with a, a pounding headache uh were you going to go back and see another one <laughs> you know so uh it it came and went very quickly and by early the early months of 1954 uh, 3d was dead at the box office and the last bunch of films were uh, basically released flat uh, for that reason. Although you show that there's a lot more activity from some of those films that were thought to be only ever shown flat. I mean, you show that on the site that Kiss Me Kate played in 3D for a while, Dial In For Murder had 3D engagements, Hondo, I think, which are all kind of ones that that the the story that everybody thought was that the 3d had sort of been swept under the rug when and you know by the time they were finished well yeah there's a lot of misconceptions in the case of kiss me kate uh radio city music hall decided not to show in 3d uh and based on that one piece of information a lot of people assumed over the years that it didn't play when in fact it had a very wide 3d release uh, most major cities played it that way uh, the same with Hondo. Uh, there was a big uh, resurgence in 3D uh, in the winter, uh, or the last few months of 1953, but it didn't last. Uh, it's just, uh, again, the quality control out in the field was a major problem. And most of the films, as, as we go back now to restore them, and we work from original uh, left-right 35-millimeter elements, uh, we find that most of them were really well photographed. You had some brilliant cinematographers behind the camera. And despite the fact that they were working with these big, new, cumbersome dual camera rigs, they were turning out a, a real high-quality stereoscopic image and uh, you know, bringing those back to life and presenting them now for people both on 3D Blu-ray on DCP for theatrical is giving uh, viewers a chance six decades later to kind of reassess what was captured on film, uh, you know, 63, 64 years ago. And uh, many people are very surprised at just how, how good the films can look. So the eye strain issues, those were not that the cameramen were doing things that turned out to be just too hard to look at. It was, it was in the presentation. Yeah, the biggest problem with the presentations were, as you, as the listeners may already know, but just to kind of revamp it, what happens is you have two projectors running simultaneously with two strips of film. 
and uh, one of them represents the view that you'd have if you closed your left eye and was looking out your right eye. And then the other one is what you would see out of your left eye. So there's a little bit of parallax between the two of them. The, the lenses, when they take the films, are separated by about an inch and a half or so. And uh, that's about the distance between the pupils of the human eye. And then um, run and sync with these two projectors interlocked, the running in synchronization. Uh, the problem is if they're as much as one frame out of synchronization, you'll start to get a watery image where what's literally happening is one eye is projecting before the other eye is. And your brain just can't take it. It will see that. And after a while, it, the way that your brain works in comprehending uh, depth and things like that, the, the way your two eyes sort of talk to each other in the brain gets thrown out of whack and you start to get some terrific eye strain and headache. And uh, that was what was happening in most of these locations. Um, there might be a, a splice that was made at some point in one strip of film and then they didn't fill it in with black like they should have to keep the sink going. Or in some cases, the equipment just was not properly calibrated. And many, many shows, I think it was up to, I think, Bob, I think we found something at some point that said a field survey was saying that as many as a third of the shows. It was actually, yeah, yeah, I think it was actually closer to 50% uh, when Polaroid sent people out in the field. It was really bad. And, I mean, if you could imagine, uh, you know, if you've seen a good presentation in 3D, you know what it could be. But if you've ever also, if you've ever seen a bad one, you know how bad it can be, too. And I think Bob and I, even in the day and age today, where we have a lot of luxuries of uh, equipment that they didn't have in the 1950s, Bob and I have seen both terrific and really terrible presentations of dual strip shows in 35. There was plenty of shooting. Plenty of fighting. Plenty of dance hall girls on hand. But nothing ever hit the Klondike before like those luscious redheads from Seattle. Let's talk about some of the other features you've released. I mean, it's up to about 10 or 12 now. You were talking about which studios did or didn't get into 3D. One of them was one of the very first 3D films, Those Redheads from Seattle, which actually came from, I guess, B producers, Pine Thomas. Basically, uh, Pine Thomas was one of Paramount's, um, I want to say B unit because it wasn't really a B unit, but economy productions, you know, like they were, they did the sort of stuff like Westerns and, uh, and stuff like that, where they could turn out stuff fairly efficiently and quickly. Um, they were no, it was Bill Pine and Bill Thomas, and they were known as the dollar bills in Hollywood. So (laughs) that gives you some context. Um, but it's a big production for them. It's their first musical. Uh, um, it's got really a star caliber cast um, and some pretty good music. The photography is quite good, although we had to do a number of fixes on, on the film because it had deteriorated over time. Um, but it's truly the first 3D musical. It beat Kiss Me Kate by, I think, a month or two. 
and uh, it also is the first time that Paramount used a widescreen system, too, in this case. What's now known as flat, which is just you take a Academy ratio image and cut the top and bottom off, and you have a, a widescreen image, although you obviously composed your image for that for those latitudes who's the audience for this now i feel i get the feeling that the industry doesn't think 3d has really worked for a lot of these modern movies uh now you've found this niche audience for all these uh, you know vi- i guess we call them vintage 3d movies although you certainly have a spread from the 50s into the 70s uh with some of them um who's who's buying them and how are they watching them at home do you know well i you know i like to say and i run into this online now quite a bit uh where people some people gleefully like to tell you that 3d is dead well i i respond if if it's dead it's a very lively corpse because we're busier than ever uh we've got nearly uh, a dozen titles in the restoration pipeline and uh, uh, we're uh, doing uh, as many as we can, you know, from the both the 1950s and up into the 70s and 80s. Uh, but the audience is is quite a mix, which is really gratifying because what we're finding, uh, there's obviously people that maybe didn't grow up in the 50s, but grew up in the 60s, 70s, 80s and saw these films flat on TV for decades. Uh, and they're now having a chance to see them as they were intended. Uh, but there's a good amount of younger people, uh, which I think is fantastic because uh, they're being exposed to something that they would never have seen otherwise. And uh, I know when we had our premiere of uh, 3D Rarities at the Museum of Modern Art a couple years ago, uh, we had a really wide range of uh, uh, ages in the audience from, you know, s- some people with, with children to a lot of uh, 20 people in their 20s and 30s. Uh, and I think there's a real interest to see what was done 60, 70, almost 100 years ago with uh, stereo cinematography. So it's it isn't a, a kind of it's actually a, a niche of a niche market because we've got you know, the, the people that want vintage film and want 3d film. And, uh, you know, these are doing well enough that we're able to keep doing it. Uh, obviously if we were losing money, uh, it would stop immediately. You know, uh, you know, we're, we're doing, we're doing quite well and it's, uh, you know, it's just worked out to be a, an amazingly busy, t- uh, we couldn't be happier. Um, one of the things that it seems like it, seems like it must drive this a bit is that there are a number of kind of science fiction and horror titles in the 3d realm let's talk about uh i mean one that i have always loved going back to you know as a kid and then i i project you know i showed it in 3d and uh, anaglyphic in college is it came from outer space which i think is really kind of the quintessential you know, thoughtful sci-fi B-movie of the 50s. Uh, and clearly one that I think Stanley Kubrick had a little influence by, because if that thing, when you see that sort of eye thing in the cave, if that isn't HAL 9000, I don't know what is. Well, yeah, uh, that was obviously very popular. Uh, 
for 3D. Uh, it wasn't the most popular. I think Westerns probably take the lead, but uh, It Came From Outer Space was a, a great opportunity to bring that one back to life. And uh, uh, we worked with Universal on that, and it, it needed a lot of work. A lot of um, There were a lot of alignment issues, uh, a lot of reverse stereo where the editor accidentally swapped out left and right, so you had the 3D image flipped occasionally. Uh, and I, I've got to say, the guy that did an incredible job on bringing that back was Greg Kintz, who is technical director for the archive. Uh, he is able to take all of these elements that have any number of uh, errors and damage and and fix them and restore them. And he does a beautiful job uh, in the case of It Came From Outer Space, we also uh, were able to restore the original three-channel magnetic stereo sound, which adds a, a whole new level of uh, experience in seeing and hearing the film as it was intended. And, uh, you know, it's a, it's a very popular uh, field for that type of 3D film. Uh, our, in fact, our next project is a horror film that was designed and directed by William Cameron Menzies uh, called The Maze. And uh, that one is uh, the next one on the, on the slate for us. So we're trying to get as many of these out of the vaults as we can. Now, Menzies is an interesting <clears throat> figure to me. Um, you know, I, originally a, an important production designer. Uh, I remember Dave Kerr called him the real auteur of Gone with the Wind which I think is an exaggeration, but nevertheless, he has, has a point to make about how, you know, as directors came and went on that picture, the one thing that's fairly consistent is Menzies' production design in conveying an, a picture of the Old South. Uh, then in the 50s, he becomes a science fiction director, did Invader from Mars and, and things like that. Um, and he also seems, I noticed his name on a couple of the films that were listed as lost. I assume those were shorts that he experimented with 3D with or something like that. Yeah, uh, Saul Lesser was going to do a, uh, a variety feature called 3D Follies uh, with a, a, about half a dozen different segments. And Menzies uh, directed two of them, uh, one in Palm Springs with a, kind of a sporting theme and another one... Uh, shot on a studio that was uh, an acrobatic troupe. Uh, but, uh, you know, I think at that time, uh, you know, hey, Menzies had to keep working. His 3D work on the maze is outstanding. Uh, it, it, it is a low-budget film. It's, it's absolutely stunning uh, to look at. And um, I think people are going to be very impressed when they see what he captured uh, on film three in the 3D version. And that should be out uh, in the early part of uh, 2018. Okay. Now, another film that you, you worked on recently that I think, you know, was really something that was, was overlooked, uh, it comes from a little after that main period of 3D boom and bust, which is September Storm, um, which is what, 1960, isn't it? Yes, it was released 1960. It was shot in 1959 uh, in uh, Mallorca, Spain. And uh, uh, Jack, do you want to talk a little bit about uh, about that one? Yeah, it's uh, an interesting picture. Um, it was shot in color and converted to CinemaScope, um, and thereby was the first 
3D CinemaScope uh, convergence, you know, the first picture in both, although it wasn't actually shot with CinemaScope lenses. Um, it's a, basically a treasure chase tale um, with Joe Andrew, and uh, it's a fun little film. It's, it's, it's a programmer. Um, if you go into it just knowing that, you'll have a lot of fun with it. If, you, if, you're, if you're expecting Gone with the Wind or something, it's totally different. But the 3D was shot with uh, the same cameras that shot Wanna Devil and House of Wax. It was uh, the natural vision cameras. And it's uh, an interesting film. It's just uh, it's an anomaly in a way because by 1960, nobody was interested in 3D anymore. So um, uh, the the producer of the film, um, Edward Alperson. Edward Alperson. Kind of, yeah, kind of took a uh, a, a chance, and uh, there were still many theaters that were set up for dual interlock 3D at the time. They just weren't using it. And uh, so he said, why not? And uh, this film actually got a little bit of a release in 3D. Uh, it stayed pretty much unknown and seen for years. In fact, um, it was kind of notorious as one of the few films that Leonard Moulton used to give a bomb to in his guide. And uh, I think he had only ever seen it pan and scan and black and white on a TV. Um, but we actually approached the owners of the film with uh, licensing it and doing a restoration of it, and we went from the original color elements, the color widescreen elements, and uh, through a Kickstarter campaign, we raised enough money to do that, and also a British short that had never been seen in 3D, and uh, those are now about both out on a 3D Blu-ray. Now, when you went into it, did you have any reason to think that it was any better than Leonard Malton thought? <laughs> um, you know, I mean, when somebody says, uh, whenever you're talking about extremes, whenever somebody says something is an extreme, you always have to take it with a grain of salt. And, and most people do when somebody says this is the best. But also, I feel the same way when you say something is the worst. You know, it's really got to live up to certain standards to be the worst. And uh, so when we saw it, we were really pleasantly surprised with it. I mean, I could see how a pan and scan flat black and white version of this 3D widescreen color film would be lacking big time. Um, and like I said, it's just a programmer. Uh, it's, but it's got beautiful photography. The location's good. Um, the screenplay is by W.R. Burnett, who did Little Caesar and so many others. Um, so it's worth checking out. It's a, it's a fun picture. Well, I should add, too, that in uh, 2003, when uh, uh, Sabu Cat Productions did the, the first World 3D Film Expo, uh, Leonard Moulton was at most of the shows, and we screened something like 30 features or so. And uh, at some point, he said, uh, I don't remember which film it was after, but he said to me, you know, these are a lot better than I realized. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and I think it really makes the point that Watching a 3D film flat is kind of like watching a color film in black and white or watching an anamorphic, uh, you know, widescreen film in pan and scan. You're not seeing it as it's intended. And, you know, for better or worse, uh, I think that's a big part of what makes rediscovering these films, uh, you know, so significant now because you're, you're finally getting a ch chance to see them 
as the creative creative team intended you to see them. And that that does make a difference. Well, speaking of things that Malton gave bombs to then, that gives me hope that if I someday if I finally see Son, Song of Norway in 70 millimeter, maybe it will be good, too. But, <laughs> there you go. Um, all right. So we get into the you know, that's like a rare um, example of 3D popping back into view. Another one uh, is Arch Obler again, um, making 3D later than you think uh, with the bubble. Uh, which is what, 66, I think? Yeah. Well, Arch Ober, uh, you know, as as I mentioned earlier, did very well with Buona Devil. And uh, he realized uh, what had effectively killed 3D was the, the need to run two films in synchronization. And he had worked for m- more than a decade with uh, a brilliant uh, designer and uh, engineer, Colonel Robert Bernier. And Bernier had started in the early 1950s uh, working on methods to deliver a quality 3D uh, image on a single strip of film. And it he wasn't wasn't a... the only one, by the way. Um, we should probably just mention, too, that uh, near the tail end of that whole cycle in the 50s, they actually did attempt to do single strip 3D uh, with a number, with a couple of titles like uh, Creature from the Black Lagoon, and I think that was a Tadra Sonico Cheese was the other one. Yes, the Nord stuff, and uh, it was just too little, too late at that point. People just weren't interested anymore. Right, but it it, it wasn't until uh, about 1963 or so when Obler uh, had done a. a you know, he was, of course, the, the genius behind the, the uh, Lights Out radio program. And he secured a deal with Capitol Records to uh, release an album of some of uh, the classic Lights Out radio shows and it, it, or, or stories. And it did very well. And he was able to get uh, Capitol to invest in developing the, the space vision lens and systems. And that was when they were finally able to green light production on the bubble. And it was released in 1966. And uh, that's a film that we were able to finally acquire the rights to it and get the camera negative. And we did a restoration uh, for 3D Blu-ray as well. Now, one thing I thought was interesting is um, you've, you know, talking about genres that you expect or don't expect to see in 3D. I mean, most of us probably associate... uh, science fiction or horror the most but uh you've got two releases now that are war films you've got dragonfly squadron which is a uh essentially like a bombing raid or you know fighter pilot kind of movie uh and then this this one called ceasefire that was shot with actual uh korean war soldiers um and i just feel like you're in a especially with the korean war one you're kind of in a different frame of mind as you're making something about the realities of war there it is a little bit like dunkirk where part of the point of shooting in 70 millimeter was just to really envelop the audience in the reality of the immediate situation well you know well, to throw in one other too uh another one that is on our 3d rarities release is a uh, short subject called doomtown which is about uh a testing of an atomic bomb in Nevada. Uh, it was the first one in which the press was allowed to actually see a detonation of an atomic bomb. 
So that's another one that adds kind of the catalog of uh, war-related 3D films from that period. But I think it adds to the realism of the reality in that case, particularly with the atomic bomb. It's like, okay, you've seen photos of it. You may have even seen films of it. Here's a 3D film of what it's like. Exactly. And that's where I think... Go ahead. And that's how Ceasefire was sold. I mean, we, we just got a scan of the trailer that we're going to be including on the Blu-ray. And it's got some kind of a tagline that, you know, realism. Uh, you know, now you'll you'll know how it feels to be a fighting man. And, uh, <laughs> you know, Ceasefire is a remarkable film because it's the only feature uh, that was actually shot in Korea during the war. Uh, this was about a mile and a half from the fighting. These were actual soldiers pulled out of the combat to uh, appear in this film. And uh, it's, it's quite an amazing achievement. Uh, and I, I tell you, the, the stereo photography, uh, considering the conditions that they were working under, is going to knock people out. It looks really, really good. And uh, it's a very timely film obviously with world affairs today, but I think it's a, uh, it's a lost film that it was out of circulation for, well, from 1954 to the late 1990s when American movie classics picked it up. It's never been on home video uh, and nobody has seen it in 3d except for two, two screenings at the 3d expos. I mean, nobody has seen it in 63 years. Uh, and that's actually going to be, we're just finishing that up now. It's going to be released on Blu-ray November 21st by Keener Lorber. And uh, it's a remarkable film, and, and I think it's going to take a lot of people by surprise. Well, in terms of how 3D works, you know, from the audience's point of view, I mean, how do you have any feeling about how it was used in the, you know, what we call the vintage era of 3D uh, versus how it's used today you know is it, obviously some of the it's a little out of fashion to do the really obvious you know bouncing a ping pong ball at the audience kind of stuff although there's plenty of throwing things at the audience in modern 3d movies i don't know do you have any other observations about about how 3d is used well i think there was some of that gimmicky stuff done uh but it, it all depended on the studio and and kind of their approach to it uh at the uh, at Columbia, uh, Harry Cohn liked to do the gimmicky stuff. So you've got things like the Three Stooges shorts, where if it basically if it's not nailed down, they're going to throw it at the camera. Uh, Warner Brothers, to a certain extent, especially with uh, Charge at Feather River, uh, you know, a lot of the outdoor stuff with arrows and tomahawks. Or, uh, but there were also a lot of the vintage films that used a lot of restraint and used 3D more as a visual enhancement technique. Uh, Miss Sadie Thompson is a great example of that with Rita Hayworth, and where the the visual aspect of it uh, takes precedence, and they're not gimmicky films. Uh, even the the guy with the pink pong ball and House of Wax was basically there as a way to get you back into the film because it was the first scene after the intermission point. Uh, but I think more than anything else, the the upper hand that the vintage 3D films have over what they're doing today is the fact that these were photographed with actual stereo camera rigs. And as Jack mentioned, the lenses are a few inches apart, so they're very close to what 
the, the human eye would see. Uh, and most of the 3D films now are shot flat and post-converted. And quite frankly, a lot of them are not done very well. Uh, they have the capability to do absolutely brilliant post-conversion. Uh, but, you know, it takes time and it takes money. And a lot of them are cranked out and not a, not a great deal of care. Uh, so a lot of the newer uh, 3D films are more 2.5D <laughs> as opposed to uh, what you'd get with the vintage uh, titles. And, uh, you know, I think that's the biggest, the, the biggest difference. You're, you're getting more bang for your buck, really, with, uh, with uh, the older 3D productions. Well, it really, I mean, it kind of sounds like history is repeating itself a bit in that everybody wants to cash in on it so quick that it, you know, quality standards slip, then the audience gets burned out on it. I mean, I'm certainly hesitant to go to one unless I have a real reason to think that there's an obvious advantage in 3D. The ticket sales are definitely down in theaters. And the problem is, this time around, you've got a system that works. The digital 3D system is kind of foolproof. But at the same time, it's also causing problems for 2D shows. Um, they're leaving those filters on for flat shows as well. So you walk into a place, and if you look behind two beams stacked on top of one another, you know, go out and ask for a refund. Don't even bother to ask them to take it off, because nine times out of ten, there's nobody out there that will be able to do it. But and uh, it's just going to end up in a dim, washed out, and a low resolution image on the screen. Um, and that's the downside this time around is that it's it's actually not the 3D films that are being hurt by it. It's the 2D shows. And uh, as Bob said, you know, most of these films now are being post converted, and there's no uh, continuity. I mean, it's, you know. As far as what films get picked for 3D, it just seems like it's a lot of action films now, uh, and people are just getting tired of it. Although I did see that Werner Werner Herzog documentary about the, yeah. the prehistoric cave, and that was really—I mean, it was fantastic. And, it, and it, it's a great example of it. I mean, you're always going to get standouts in, in all of these. I mean, it's not like the entire output of any given format is going to be pablum. I mean, there, there've been some really good ones. Um, Joe Dante did a film a few years back that didn't really see much of a release, but it was a terrific use of 3d called the hole. And, uh, he knew cause he's a classic film buff. He knew exactly how he was going to approach the photography of the film. And it looks terrific. But, but it's by and large a lot of uh, first-run films that are being post-converted, and they're not really showing the process off very well. Yeah, I mean, they're, they're, there's more... When, when people think of 3D in a very elementary way, they think of that. They think of something coming out of the screen. But uh, people who take the artistry of it seriously, I mean, if you can call it an art form, I mean, it's not uh, very well-respected in any of the photography communities but there's something to be said for it it's very difficult to do a good 3d photo uh it's about layering and it's about depth and uh you want it so that the film is a window more than it is just uh, a canvas on the screen you know a picture on the screen you want some you want to be able to see distance and 
in a certain way, the film that uh, best embodies that as far as the psychological effects of it is uh, Dial On For Murder because Hitchcock really pulls back, he dials in the 3D for the most part. It's a very, um, for a 3D film, it's rather depthless in many ways, but he always makes sure there's layering in the shot. There's always things in the foreground and in the background, but not in a very self-conscious way. But then at the most key points, the depth really pulls out all the stops. Right, when she sort of raises her hand with the scissors in them, and that goes over the audience. I mean, that is a real audience gasp exactly. kind of moment, yeah. Uh, but I, another good example of that, too, would be um, in House of Wax. Everybody remembers the ping pong uh, or the paddle ball guy that we mentioned before. But actually, the scene that makes the most impact on an audience is uh, at the end of the film when... Um, Paul Paterni and Charles Bronson are having a fight in the Wax Museum. And uh, it starts with uh, Charles Bronson actually leaping out from the audience perspective. So off camera, into the camera. And when you watch it with an audience for the first time, when the first time they've seen it, they're not expecting it. It looks like somebody jumping into the screen from, from the audience. And everybody gasps collectively. I, rem- really I remember that perfectly from 1971. That was what we all came out of it talking about was, did you see that? It was like the guy in front of us got up and, you know, so yeah, yeah. <laughs> a great, a great moment. Um, well, we know there's one place that these things will be shown correctly. And that is in the retrospective uh, coming, uh, starting September 1st. Uh, yes. Starting September 1st, uh, the Museum of Modern Art is going to be running a 10 10- a retrospective of our most recent restoration work and you'll have an opportunity to see uh, 3D rarities GOG, Dragonfly Squadron Redheads from Seattle and September Storm on the big screen and uh, the opening weekend uh, Greg Kintz and myself Jack Feekston, uh Thad Komorowski who does a lot of our digital uh, image cleanup will be on hand uh, we'll do some introductions we'll be there to you know, take questions uh, after the screenings with some of the audience. So uh, if you're in the New York area, it's a great opportunity. Uh, and we're Jack, do you want to talk a little bit about the, what's coming up at the uh, Alamo Draft House? And then in the following week, Alamo Draft House in Yonkers is going to be doing a similar retrospective, and we'll be running a number of uh, similar titles. We'll be certainly running... Um, 3D Rarities, September Storm, The Mask, and others. Uh, so that's worth checking out on their website, and that's up in uh, their Yonkers location. Okay. And uh, hopefully smart programmers around the country may uh, do the same thing elsewhere. Yeah, we're working with a number of uh, companies right now. Uh, we have uh, DCPs of all of our titles available. Um, most of them you can book through Kino Lorber, but uh, we, we've been working with a lot of the repertory theaters that are set up for 3D to be bringing uh, more presentations in the next year. Yes, it came from outer space to fill the world with terror. In the astonishing realism of three dimension, with objects coming right out of the screen, so real they almost touch
Thanks to my guests, Bob Fermanek and Jack Theakston. There will be lots of links to things we talked about in the show post at nitrateville.com, where, I should point out in the interests of sheer pluggery, both Bob and Jack have been contributors over the years. Music is by Kevin McLeod. In the next episode, we'll talk about one of the most likable screen personalities of the silent era, Colleen Moore, with someone who knew her and saved some of her films, Joe Aransky. Be sure not to miss a single episode. Subscribe to Nitrateville Radio at iTunes, SoundCloud, or Stitcher. Thanks. <laughs>